Okay, if you have your Bibles, will you turn to Psalm 19? Psalm 19. What we're going to do today is spend a little bit of time just thinking about how it is that we prepare ourselves for time alone with the Lord. You know, you get down, you sit down, you open your Bible, you're like, okay, Lord, I'm here, I'm ready to go. Um, What we want to do is think rightly about how to prepare ourselves for time with the Lord, how to think rightly about why we're there, who we're there with, and what our aim is in this. Um, This is just one way to prepare yourself well for your time alone with the Lord. I'm going to read the first couple of verses. The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. You're sitting there, you're either inside or you're outside, um, and what you have here from God is His testimony that everything around you is testifying to the weightiness, the glory, the substantial nature of who God is. Um, The expanse of the heavens is declaring the work of his hands. It's very humbling to realize how large the universe is and how much more we understand about how big it is than David did when he wrote this. Even though he was inspired, he didn't quite have the grasp that we do, the order of magnitude that we're working with. So when we spend time with the Lord, it's really helpful to remember that he is the creator. And he has put himself and his weightiness on display, the substance of who he is on display in the size of the universe that's around us. If you meet with the Lord at night, you have the moon and the stars and all of their size and their dimension. Just think about And what those things relate to us is the glory of God, who he is, the massiveness of his, his substance. It's really good because it's helpful for us to remember when we're spending time alone with the Lord, that he is the one who's informing us. He is the one who's informing us about himself and his character, and he is the one who's informing us about us and our condition before him. And we ask ourselves, well, why do I come before the word of the, why do I come before the Lord in the word? Drop down a few verses. We're going to start at verse 7. This is what is true about the word, and it tells us also about the benefit to the person who reads the word. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. Okay, David is writing this about 1,000 years B.C. And the Old Testament law is what he had. He had the Pentateuch. He had some history of some of the older books. But he didn't have much, but he had the law. And he says the law itself is perfect. There's nothing wrong with the law. There's no imperfection in it. And what does it do? It restores his soul. Lord, I am here. I'm reading your word because your word is perfect and it restores my soul. The day I just got through with or the day that I'm about to start with is going to tear at me. And I need to be restored through the reading of your word. The testimony of the Lord is sure. Lord, I can count on what it is that you tell me. It is certain. It is sure. What does it do? It makes wise the simple. Lord, I'm a simple man. You are God. You're the one who understands everything. I'm the one who is coming to understand things. I'm very simple, but it is your word that makes me wise. I need wisdom. I want wisdom. And when I interact with your word, that is how I get that wisdom. The precepts of the Lord are right. We live in a world that advertises what is wrong and what is sinful is what is right. 
in our mixed condition, which we'll talk a little bit about today, we're inclined to believe that. We're so inclined to believe that. I know that I am. And I need to be reminded daily that, Lord, when you put something in your word, you put something in your word because I need to know that that is what is right and what is true. That is why I'm here. I'm here to understand what is right and what is wrong. And what does it do? It rejoices my heart. My heart is designed by God, having been transformed by his Holy Spirit, to rejoice in his precepts that are right. Why else am I here before the Lord? I'm here before the Lord because his commandment is pure and it enlightens my eyes. My eyes are so attuned to look at things that are not right, not good, not honoring and pleasing to the Lord, but his commandment is pure and his commandment enlightens my eyes. Lord, when I'm here before you, I need to be reverent before you. I need to be fearful of you. Not fearful that you're going to harm me, but I need to have a sober awareness of your holiness. And what does that do? Uh, It endures forever in the believer. Lord, when I interact with your word and when I inform myself from your word, I pray that you would help my fear of you to continue and to grow and to sustain life and sustain me through my life. You want to understand what is right or what is wrong, what is true and what is false? God's word tells us in the middle of verse 9, the judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. When you read instructions, when you read mandates that are placed in Scripture before the Christian, they are right and they are true. They're righteous altogether. This is what we can count on. The the world around us has so much in it that that is false. Some of it looks right and deceives us into thinking that it's right, but we come before God's Word because God's Word tells us what is right and what is true. Sometimes I need to inform myself, Lord, this is what is more desirable for me. My heart will lie to me and it will deceive me and tell me that something else is more desirable. But what is desirable are your instructions for me, your testimony, your precepts, your commandments, everything else. When I spend time doing that before the Lord, it helps me remember why I'm there. It helps my time with the Lord be more close and more intimate, more personal. It helps me be ready for him to inform me from the word. It helps my mind stay focused on what it is that I'm going to be reading in my reading plan that day and how I'm going to be praying. Um, This is one way that I I prepare my mind before the Lord. It helps me understand who he is and the position that he has to inform me of um, my place before him. So if you are at a place in your life where you're meeting with the Lord, but you'd like it to be, you would like it to be, a deeper, more intimate, more close, more meaningful time with the Lord. Maybe you can start in Psalm 19 and read through Psalm 19 before you actually start your time alone with the Lord. Just inform yourself about what you're reading, the nature of what it is that you're reading, and who God is and who you are. And the goal there is to just grow ourselves in our preparation, our readiness to walk with the Lord throughout the day that he planned for us. So I hope that's helpful to you guys. I hope that's... um, instructive and helpful if you need something to help get your your walk with the Lord fired up your your time alone with him when you do this this will grow your your hunger and your desire to meet consistently with the Lord so if your your pattern of meeting with the Lord is not consistent perhaps dwelling on the truth of God's word and the power that God's word has and the reliability of it and the certainty of it um, will grow your desire to meet more consistently with him if you're not already doing so All right, what we're going to do now is we are going to break apart in discussion groups.
All right, this is the second in our two-part series on God's transformation of man from unregenerate to heavenly, the states and the events in a believer's life. This is a re-recording of what was given last Saturday morning. Uh, For some reason, we had some technical difficulties, and we didn't actually get the message recorded. So what you're hearing now is another recording of the same message. All right, last time we looked at God's transformation of man, and we looked at the unregenerate man and the regenerate man. And we just want to summarize some of the events that took place in the unregenerate man on his path to becoming a regenerate man. As we look back at what we looked at, the, the primary characteristic as you look at your transformation of man booklet is that the man is in an unmixed and sinful condition. And this is the kind of person who he is from birth without Christ. He's been this way his whole life. And this is his unmixed condition. And in this condition, he is unable not to sin. He's unable to please God. There's no internal fight against sin. He's dominated by and he's enslaved to sin. In fact, sin rules all of his faculties, his thoughts, his emotions, his motives, his actions. And this is a person who is under God's wrath and under judgment. Moreover, this is a person who is not interested in any way in changing his condition. The condition that he is in is the one he's accustomed to. It's the one that he's familiar with. It's actually the one that he loves. And so what we looked at last time was this person's condition is a hopeless and a helpless condition before God. We also looked at the regeneration event, the event that takes place in the unbeliever's life that transforms that person from being unregenerate to regenerate. And we looked at, there were these were all one-time events, one-time events that were accomplished by God in the gospel, in the life of the person being made alive. And the first thing we wanted to do was just a quick summary of the gospel message itself. And we at Grace Bible Church have two phrases that we think encapsulates the gospel message very well. The first phrase that we use to describe the gospel is adoption through propitiation. Adoption through propitiation. What is taking place there as we look at each one of those words is that a person is becoming adopted. They're being made a part of a family into which they don't naturally belong. And they're doing so by the propitious sacrifice of Jesus on the cross in their place. The idea of propitiation, as we discussed last time, was the satisfaction of wrath. So what you have here in adoption through propitiation is Jesus' satisfaction of the Father's wrath against the sinner who is being saved so that the sinner can be adopted into the body of Christ. The other phrase we use to describe the gospel is very similar. It's called penal substitutionary atonement. And if you look at those three words, the first of which describes a penalty, a penalty that is being paid. That's the penalty that Jesus paid on the cross as he absorbed within his own body God's wrath against everybody who would believe in him as their Savior and their Lord. But it was also a substitutionary atonement. It was one in which Jesus served in the place of the one who was guilty. Jesus actually took the sin of the unbeliever into his own body. It became a part of them. Every thought, every word, and every deed of the sinner who was offensive to God became a part of Jesus, and Jesus received the penalty for that. And then the result of that is what is described in the third word, atonement. It's a process by which the one who is alienated or estranged 
or an adversary or an enemy of God is brought into unity with God. So in summary, this part of the gospel message is that there was a penalty paid by Jesus in place of the sinner to bring about unity between the sinner and a holy God. So that's a summary of the gospel message itself. As we look at regeneration, we want to look at the fact that there are two aspects of regeneration. Both of them are events. One are the components of that regeneration event, and the other are the benefits of that regeneration event. Just briefly, we're going to take a look at the components of that regeneration event. The main component is that a person who is an unbeliever, who is unregenerate, on their way to becoming a regenerate man, that person must have new birth. They are made alive in Christ. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 4 and 5 says, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. So if you look at the subject and the verb and the direct object, what you can see is that God made us alive. There was no life apart from God's work. So this is a work that was accomplished by God. It was new birth that was given to the one being saved by God. And as you read through the rest of the elements on the list, you can see that all of these are also accomplished by God. There is a positional sanctification. A person who is estranged from God is now set apart unto God. They're set apart by God and unto God for life with him forever. That's a work that's done by God. There is also a justification. There is a being declared righteous. God is the one declaring the sinner now righteous in his sight. There is the imputation of righteousness. This is where the believer becomes credited with God's righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus Christ, as Jesus Christ served in their place at the cross. We mentioned adoption earlier. Adoption, again, is the process by which one who is estranged from a family or not a member of a family becomes a part of that family to which they don't naturally belong. That is what God does with every sinner when he makes them a saint. He adopts them into his family. Again, it's a work done by God. There's union with Christ that is given to the believer. The believer is made one with Christ. There's expiation. Expiation is the removal of their sin. There's propitiation. We talked about that earlier. There's Jesus Christ satisfying the Father's wrath against the sinner. Again, a work that's performed by the Godhead. And the beneficiary is the sinner who's being saved. There's redemption. To redeem means to purchase away from the power of one by the payment of a price. Here we have Jesus paying the price of his own life, his own blood on the cross, to purchase the saint away from the power of sin. There's forgiveness. There's God granting forgiveness to the man. In Christ, we have forgiveness through his blood. So these are all benefits that the believer derives from, I'm sorry, these are all components of the regeneration event. These are things that are performed for the believer by God. They're done one time, in point in time, at conversion, at regeneration. They're done by God, and the beneficiary of that is the believer. Likewise, there are a whole series of regeneration event benefits. And this is what distinguishes the Christian from the unbeliever. These are 
unchangeable, objective realities that are secured by God for the believer at conversion. This person is now loved by God, whereas they were formerly an enemy of God, they're loved by God. They have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit within them, something that was not true before. They also are indwelled by Christ. They're a member of Christ's body. They're also members of one another in a way that they never were before. They have access to God in a way that they never had before. The person who comes to Christ is also saved from God's wrath. Think about the benefit of that. They will never have to experience an eternal torment that is beyond our ability to comprehend how bad it really is. They're also free from condemnation. There is no longer any condemnation for the one who is in Christ Jesus. Beyond that, the believer is unable to be separated from Christ. There is nothing, neither life nor death, nor any power on this earth or any power in the heavenly places that can separate us from the love of God. Another benefit of the regeneration event is that the believer now is capable of doing something that they could never do before, and that is demonstrate the fruit of God's Holy Spirit within them. They're able to genuinely demonstrate a love and a joy and a peace. They're able to demonstrate a kindness and a goodness and a gentleness and a faithfulness and a self-control. And finally, one of the other benefits is that the citizenship of the, the one being saved is transferred from this world into heaven. So those are the benefits of being a believer. Again, these are benefits that are accomplished by God. They're secured by God for the believer at conversion. None of these are ever changeable. For the one who perseveres to the end, these benefits are theirs for eternity. We spent a little bit of time talking about the regenerate man. The regenerate man is described in the middle section of our booklet. And the, the key point here is that a regenerate man is in a mixed condition. As you look at the top of your booklet, you can see that on the left-hand side, the unregenerate man is described with a darkened color, and that's to represent his dirtiness and his sin before God. As you look at the center section of the booklet, you see that the, the regenerate man is being slowly transformed from a darker color to a color which is more light and more yellow. And that's indicating the progressive, ongoing sanctification that's taking place in the life of a believer, a progressive renewal. The way we see that in the life of a believer is the believer demonstrates more and more Christ-likeness in their life as the years beyond their conversion pass. What we're going to do here is we're just going to review some of the things about the believer, the regenerate man, the man who is in the regenerate condition. What we see is that these are very important to understand, that the person has unchanging realities that are accomplished at regeneration. This person has a new identity in Christ. They are free from the power of sin. The fruit of the Holy Spirit is evidence in their life. They are saved unto good works, and good works don't save them, but their good works are the evidence that they have been saved. But what we want to look at here is now that the person has the ability to obey God. They have a new relationship with sin, and that is in, found in Romans chapter 6. Whereas sin used to be master over them, now they have a new master. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead caused the believer to no longer be a slave to sin, starting at their point of conversion. 
So the believer now has a new relationship with sin. They are able to obey God. They are no longer unable to not sin. And that's something that's very important for the believer to think about, is that he actually works out his salvation every day. He needs to stop and remember, you know, I have the ability to walk in newness of life because Christ was raised from the dead. One of the main things we want to remember about the regenerate condition is that the man is in a mixed condition and he has a proneness to sin. And so to do that, we're going to look at Galatians chapter 5, verse 17. If you have your Bible, would you turn to Galatians 5? We're going to look at verse 17. As we do that, I want you to see the kind of condition that the man is in in Galatians 5. This is speaking about the believer. And we're going to see two forces that are at work within the believer. Galatians 5.17 says, For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. These are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. So what we see right there in front of us, God's testimony to us, for the Christian who is alive today, is that he has within him flesh. That is his fleshly desires, the desires that have always been within him since the day he was born. They're a part of his human body. We all know those realities today. We, we know the, the pull of our flesh within us. All we have to do is stop and think about the things that appeal to us and how there's a part of us that is drawn to those things. Well, that's the flesh that's still within us. Though it didn't go away at conversion, that's still a part of us. But what we see here is something that's new, and we see it earlier in one of the bullet points in this section, and that is the believer is now indwelt by Christ. And we see here that they are also indwelt by the Holy Spirit. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit. This is the Holy Spirit who has now taken up residence within the believer. So you have this flesh setting its desire against the Spirit. You have the Spirit setting its desire back against the flesh. These are in opposition to one another. They're in opposition to one another. So there is a tension within the believer. If you look at Titus chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, these words tell us that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. So the ungodliness is within the believer, the worldly desires are within the believer, and the believer has to actually be instructed not to um, give in to those, but rather to deny those, and to live sensibly and righteously and godly in the present age. So the man is in a mixed condition. He has the spirit within him who convicts him according to sin and righteousness and judgment. But he also has his flesh within him that appeals to him with, with sin. And this requires involvement from two parties in order for the believer to walk successfully in this condition. One of those two parties is God and the other is man. And what we can see here is the work on God's part is relentless. If you turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, we see something that's essential for the believer to understand. And this is God's commitment to work on behalf of the believer. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 says, Therefore we do not lose heart. The Christian does not lose heart. Though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. So what we see there is that God is renewing the inner man of the regenerate man Day by day, God is actually at work renewing that person, sustaining them, strengthening them. 
But we also see that it's the believer's responsibility to make use of the grace that God has has given to them and God has lavished upon them to walk in newness of life. We see that very clearly in 2 Peter chapter 2, uh, sorry, chapter 1, verses 3 through 8. We're going to look at verse 3 and we're going to see that God has given something to the believer. And then we're going to start reading in verse 5 and we're going to see the responsibility of the believer in return. 2 Peter 1, 3 says that God's divine power has granted to the believer everything pertaining to life and godliness. So God has lavished upon them grace that grants them everything they need. Everything that they need for life and godliness has been given by God. There is no reason why the believer should not be living in godliness every moment of every day because God has given them everything they need. However, we see as we keep reading in this passage that there is a responsibility that the believer has to add to the faith that God has given to him. The faith has been given to him, but the believer is responsible to add to that. Not to add faith itself, because that is given, but other things. And we see that as we read verses 5 and following. Paul write, or Peter writes, For this very reason also, applying all diligence, so with diligence in your faith as a faithful Christian, the Christian is to supply moral excellence. They're also to supply knowledge. And in addition to that, they're to supply self-control and perseverance and godliness and brotherly kindness and love. Those are seven personal characteristics that the believer must supply, that they must demonstrate. It's the responsibility of the believer to demonstrate moral excellence and knowledge and self-control and perseverance and godliness and brotherly kindness and love. So we see two things at work at the same time. One is that God has given them everything they need for life and godliness. But it's the responsibility of the believer to utilize what God has given them and apply that towards increasing moral excellence day by day, increasing knowledge day by day, and so forth through the list. The believer needs to remember his mixed condition because when he's in mixed condition, He actually lies to himself and he deceives himself. And this is something that's not just true in the New Testament. We see the the testimony of this in the Old Testament as well. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? So in his new regenerate condition, the believer has a heart that actually deceives him. So the believer needs to be very suspect He needs to be very wary, very suspicious about himself and his own desires because he is very prone to deceive himself in his new condition as a regenerate man. So this requires perseverance. Hebrews chapter 3 verses 12 through 14 says, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil and unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Verse 14, for we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. So the believer is promised that they have become a partaker of Christ, but only as they hold fast the beginning of the assurance that they have firm until the end. So the Christian life is not one in which the believer does not persevere. The believer is marked by perseverance. 
They're marked by awareness about their own indwelling sin. They're marked by a diligent pursuit of holiness. So we'll just look at the key descriptors of the man who is in this regenerate condition. It's a mixed condition, a condition in which he is able not to sin. He still sins, but he's able not to sin. He is able to please God, and there is a fight within him against sin and for Christ. It's very important to understand that one aspect, one testimony, one evidence that a person is a believer is there is an ongoing lifelong fight within them against sin. This person now has a new master, so they are enslaved to God. They are enslaved to righteousness and obedience. And two things are true at the same time. Two things are evident at the same time. Residual sin is evident within the man, and his regenerate condition is evident. And that plays itself out in all of his thoughts, all of his motions, all of his motives, and all of his actions. Something that's very, very important is that the believer is now able to shepherd his heart away from sin and to God. And the way that he does that is by meditating on, dwelling on, believing in, thinking on the truths from Scripture about who he is in Christ. And finally, the one in the regenerate condition is no longer under God's wrath or judgment. What a blessing that is. So what we want to look at today is how it is that the regenerate man moves from the condition in which we presently are today to the heavenly condition, the condition in which the believer will be forever. And so as we do that, we move over to the right-hand side, the third portion of your booklet. We see that the heavenly man is now with Christ. He is in an unmixed, sinless condition. He is made righteous. The Apostle Paul wrote two long letters in Scripture to, that are recorded in Scripture to the church in Corinth. He actually wrote to them three or four times, but we have two of them recorded for us in Scripture. And the church in Corinth had many, many issues. And so that's why the letters are longer as you read them. They had issues with divisions within the church. They had issues with the abuse of the Lord's table and the abuse of marriage and sexual sin and taking one another to court and lots of other things. And Paul addresses those at the front part of the letter. But this is a church that needed to understand what was coming for the believer. So as you read chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, verses 50 to 57, you see something very important. Paul describes two aspects of the man who is heavenly. He describes that they are imperishable and they are immortal. Let me read verses 50 through 57 of 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says, Now I say this, brethren, that the flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. So as you read this passage and look at it, you can see that Paul describes the imperishable condition of the believer in eternity. 
The way to think about something that's imperishable in Scripture is to think of it similar to the way we would describe food. Someone who is imperishable spiritually is someone who is incapable of being corrupted or spoiled, just in the same way that food that is imperishable cannot be spoiled. The believer who is a heavenly man in the eternal condition, in the eternal state, is beyond the reach of corrupting sin. You see that in verse 52. The dead will be raised imperishable. You see it in verse 53. This perishable must put on the imperishable. And again in verse 54. When this perishable would have put on the imperishable. So what you see in the eternal condition, in the heavenly state, the man is imperishable. He's beyond the reach of corrupting sin. Each one of those verses, verses 52, 3, and 4, is describing that a condition that is not and cannot be corrupted or flawed by sin. Very important to understand that at the cross, the penalty for sin was removed. When Jesus actually hung on the cross and died, the penalty of sin was removed. At Jesus' resurrection from the dead, sin's power was removed over the believer, and the believer now has a new relationship with sin. So here in this earth, the believer experiences freedom from sin's penalty and freedom from sin's power. But it's not until eternity that the believer experiences freedom from sin's presence. So the penalty and the power of sin are removed here by the cross and the resurrection of Christ, respectively. But the presence of sin is removed in eternity. So that's the first description of the heavenly man, that he's imperishable. But also the heavenly man is immortal. And that means that he's beyond the reach of death. Whereas the imperishable is beyond the reach of sin, the immortal man is beyond the reach of death. And you see that in verse 54. The mortal must put on immortality. And in verse 54, towards the end of the verse, death is swallowed up in victory. If you read verse 56, you see that the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. And what you see here is that death no longer has power over a person because death has power over a person only where sin is present. And where there is no place for death, then sin is no longer present. So one way to see that is when sin is no longer present, there is no place for death. So because the believer is beyond the reach of corrupting sin, they are also beyond the reach of death. Because they will not be corrupted by sin, there is no longer a place for death. Isn't that encouraging? We're going to take a look at our booklet here, and you look at the right-hand side of it, and you can see some passages that we're going to take a look at that describe some things that are true about them. the man who is heavenly. And the first is that the man is at home with the Lord. Second Corinthians 5.8 tells us, We are of good courage, I say, and we prefer, rather, to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. So heaven is the permanent home of the Christian. It's where the Christian is at rest or at their true home. The Christian home is not here. There is no true final rest here on this earth. The Christian's true resting place is in heaven because that's his home. Something else that's true about the believer, not only is that they're at home with the Lord, 
but is that they resembled Jesus. I want us to turn to 1 John chapter 3, verse 2 to take a look at this. There are other belief systems that are at place in the world today who misinterpret this passage to believe that a person becomes a God because this passage tells us that we're becoming like Christ. But what we're going to read here is that there is a different way in which the believer becomes like Christ. So let's read 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. And some context here is important to remember. John is writing to his audience and he is trying to help his listening audience understand the distinction between the believer and the unbeliever. And here he's explaining how a believer changes in the eternal state. He writes in verse 2 of chapter 3, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he, who is Christ, appears, we will be like him because we see him just as he is. This is not saying that believers become gods just like Jesus. Instead, what this is saying is that we will be like Jesus in that we are immortal and we're free from death. And that we'll be like Jesus because we're imperishable and we'll be free from sin. So in their immortality and their imperishability, the believer in the eternal condition in the heavenly state will be like Christ in those regards. God's word also tells us that the believer will be seen for who he really is in Christ. I want us to turn to Colossians chapter 3 verse 4. This passage says, When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. This is a reference to the day of the Lord, when Jesus returns to this earth to establish his rule here for a thousand years. And when he does that, his saints will be with him. They will be following behind him as he establishes his rule and his reign on this earth will be revealed with Christ and it will be very evident and very obvious that we are with Christ and we are a part of his kingdom and we are a part of his rule and his reign on this earth. The believer, the heavenly man, will also be blameless and full of joy. We see that in Jude 24. This is one of the most wonderful phrases in the Bible. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory blameless, with great joy. The setting here is eternity in heaven. The Christian will be blameless in that state because Christ has already taken the blame for their sin at the cross. So because of what Christ has already done at the cross, they will stand in the presence of God in eternity, blameless, with joy. Something else that's true about the heavenly man is that he will not experience death or sadness. We alluded to this earlier in the fact that the man is immortal. But look at Revelation chapter 21, verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. There will be no death because sin's presence has been removed. And there will be no sadness because with the removal of sin, the Christian's only experience will be to comprehend the boundless, infinite, unending, ever-increasing glory of God. That will be the experience of the believer. Sadness and sorrow will not be part of their experience. Instead, they'll be facing a holy living God 
experiencing his glory, getting blown away by his glory, day after day after day. Lastly here, we point out something that's another experience of the believer in the heavenly condition. And that is that he'll never experience a curse and he'll never experience night. We experience night every 24-hour period on this earth. But God tells us something is going to be very different in eternity. He says, there will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him, and there will no longer be any night. There will be no curse in heaven because the occasion for the curse, which is sin, has already been removed. And there will be no night because the Christian will be continually, forever, consistently in the presence of the Lord God, and his glory will illuminate all of the new earth. And because his glory is on display at all times, the light of his glory will be on display at all times, and there will be no night. So the summary here is that the man is now in an unmixed condition. The heavenly man is in an unmixed condition. His unmixed condition is different than the unmixed condition of the unregenerate man. The unmixed condition of the unregenerate man is that he is not able to please God. But the the heavenly man is in an unmixed condition in which he is unable to displease God. He's unable to sin. And this is what's so encouraging for the believer, that in his heavenly condition there will be no fight against sin. And the reason why is because sin will no longer be present. Mm -hmm. The heavenly man will be righteous in all of his faculties, all of his emotions, all of his motives, all of his actions. He'll be perfectly enveloped with God's joy. So what we're going to look at next is how you get from from the regenerate man to the heavenly man. How you get from the mixed condition to the unmixed and sinless condition. And as we look at that, it's very important that we understand that Jesus wants us to be in that condition. In his high priestly prayer in John 17, before he went to the cross, Jesus prays to the Father and he says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, saints in this world, be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me. So Jesus, the Savior, wants the Christian to be with him in glory in heaven and to observe his glory forever. So now what we're going to do is we're going to look at the events that transport the man from the regenerate condition to the heavenly condition. And you see those along the bottom portion of the third side of your booklet. We're going to be looking at death first. Death is departing the land of the dying and going home, departing the land of the dying and going home. So let's see what scripture says about the characteristics of death. First, we see that one of the characteristics of death is that there is a disintegration of the inner man from the outer man. The idea of integration is to bring something together. So the idea behind disintegration is to separate things apart. We see that in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 1 and 8. And what we look at here is Paul speaking of the body and the experience that the believer has in their body. And so we read that Paul says to the church in Corinth, For we know that if the earthly tent, that is our body, 
which is our house, is torn down, that is, experienced death. We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Verse 8, verse eight says, We are of good courage, I say, and we prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Here on earth, the regenerate man, the inner man and the outer man are integrated together. They're integrated together. The man's body and the man's soul, his outer man and his inner man are integrated together. But death disintegrates or separates the inner man and the outer man. But while death separates the two, the inner man's soul continues to live on even though the body is dead. Something else that's true about death is that death is a safe passage or a safe journey home. These are Paul's last recorded words in Scripture. He's writing to Timothy, who is pastoring the church in Ephesus, and Paul wants Timothy to have a right view and a right understanding of death. Paul says, and he knows he's dying, he says, The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. The word will there indicates that Paul knows with certainty that death will usher him from this life into God's kingdom. The Christian, the one who perseveres to the end, is called to view death this way. It is the event, death is the event that transports the Christian safely into God's kingdom. So death is the triggering event for the Christian to pass safely from this life into heaven. Death is also a condition in which the believer is unseparated from Jesus and cannot be separated from Jesus. Romans 8.38 tells us, For I am convinced that neither death nor a whole list of other things, life, angels, principalities, things present, things to come, powers, heights, depths, any other created thing, none of them, including death, will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So whereas death separates the soul of the saint from his physical body, the soul of the Christian will never, never be separated from Christ. Not only that, but the believer is actually still alive. Here we have the story of John, John 11, the story of Lazarus. Jesus is talking to Martha. We're going to be looking at verses 25 to 26 of John 11. He's talking to Martha, and Martha knows that her dead brother Lazarus will rise again at the resurrection. So she believes that. She knows that one day he will rise again. But look at what Jesus says to her about Lazarus in his present condition. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, Lazarus and other believers, will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. So Jesus is referring to Lazarus' soul here. Lazarus' body is clearly dead, but his soul is clearly alive. The soul of the Christian who has died is alive and well, even though their body is separated from their soul. Death is also referred to as sleep throughout the New Testament. And one place where we see that is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. It's important for us to understand the context here. Paul is writing to a church that he pastored for about a month in Thessalonica. He was there no more than a month. And by God's grace, a church was formed. And this is a young body of believers. And they're very persecuted by the Jews and the Gentiles for what they believe. Paul had to leave 
and traveled down the coast to escape the persecution and to keep his life. And so he didn't have a chance to explain everything about the gospel and everything about eternal life to those Christians while he was with them. So he wrote to them, and part of the reason why he wrote to them was to encourage them and comfort them in their difficult life. And one of the things was that these Christians in Thessalonica had questions about how could a person who has died continue to be with Christ. And so Paul writes to them in verse 13 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, We don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep. Paul is not referring to a physical sleep here. Rather, Paul is saying that in the same way that a sleeping person continues to exist, but he's passed from consciousness into sleep, the dead saint has passed from this life into the next life. So those are encouraging words because Paul is helping them understand that the inner man continues to exist. The one who is dead is also precious to God. And this is Old Testament truth, Old Testament theology. Psalm 116 verse 15 says, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his godly ones. What we can take from that is that God's covenant care for the Old Testament saint was unaffected by the saint's death, the saint had every assurance from God himself that his loving care for them would continue into death. Not only that, but death was gain for the believer. Paul writes to the church in Philippi, chapter 1, verse 21 of Philippians, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So to possess all the benefits of death, to be precious to God, to be inseparable from Christ, to be safely at home, to be asleep, all of those benefits are immeasurably better than any experience in this world. So it's gain for the believer to experience death. So in summary, death removes the Christian from this world. The Christian is taken out of this mixed condition and his soul is ushered permanently into the presence of God. Next, we're going to look at the resurrection event, the third of the three events that are described at the bottom. And this is, whereas death is the disintegration of the inner man and the outer man, Resurrection is the integration of the perfect inner man and a glorified body. So it's the integration of a perfect inner man and a glorified body. It's the raising of the dead body into the resurrected body. This is the experience of every Christian who dies before Jesus, returns to take the church out of this world to be with him. So again, this is something that everybody who dies before the rapture will experience. We're going to read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 42 to 48. And as we read those, what we want you to see is a new physical glorified body that the heavenly man possesses. This is a passage that's similar to the one earlier we read. It comes prior to 1 Corinthians 50, verses 50 to 58. But what we see here, the emphasis is on the new body. Paul writes, so also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. The body is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. The body is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Drop down to verse 48. As is the earthly, so also are those who are earthly. And as is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. Just as we have borne the image of the earthly, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. 
So if you look at verses 42 and 43, you see that the body is raised imperishable. It's untarnished by sin. The body itself is untarnished by sin. It is raised in glory. The body is no longer under the curse of sin. It's raised in power. The body is no longer characterized by human frailties. And it's raised a spiritual body. The saint no longer possesses a body that's in accordance with our earthly human nature. So when the Christian is raised from the dead, his body will be nothing like the one that died. Instead, it will bear new characteristics. It's imperishable, it's glorious, it's powerful, and it's spiritual. These are the same characteristics as the heavenly hosts who have always been there. The resurrection also has very good implications and strong implications for the order in which people are raptured. As Paul is writing to the church in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, the church in Thessalonica, he wants them to understand what will be the experience of the believer, those that have died in Christ. And he's, he's going to be talking about the experience of those who have died in Christ and those who are still alive together at the time of the return of Christ when he returns to take the church out of this world. So again, this is when Christ returns to take the church out of this world. And what we want to be looking at here is what happens in time for those that have died in Christ versus those who are still alive at the time that Christ returns. And Paul says in 1 Thess 4.15, For this we say by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive that those who are alive at the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. The resurrection of the dead saints occurs before the transformation of the living saints. So what happens is those that are dead in Christ, those that have already died, their bodies are resurrected from the dead. They have these new, wonderful, glorified bodies that we just read about, and that will occur right in full view of, right in front of, the believers who were already alive at the time of Christ, who are still alive. So once again, the dead saint at the time of Christ's return is raised from the dead in his new glorified body, and that's observable and witnessable by the Christians who observe this happening, who are still alive when Christ returns. Now we're going to be looking at the rapture event. The rapture is the translation or the transformation of the living into the resurrected body. This specifically relates to those saints who are alive when Jesus returns to take the church to be with him. So something that's very important to understand here is that those saints who are alive when Christ returns to rapture the church out of this world, those saints who are alive will bypass death to be with Jesus. We see 1 Thess 4, 16 and 17 making that very clear. The Lord Jesus himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. We already reviewed that. Then verse 17, Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so we shall always be with the Lord. The living saints observe the resurrection of the dead saints, then they are joined together with those saints in Jesus in the clouds. Something else that's true is that the believers who are alive at the return of Christ experience an instantaneous physical transformation. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 and 52 tell us that 
Paul says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. So Paul is describing the change that under, is undergone by those who are still alive. That's the change that takes place is the same as those who are resurrected from the dead. They'll be changed immediately into an imperishable, glorious, powerful, spiritual body. The only difference is they won't have experienced death. So this is God's design for how the regenerate man in a mixed condition is transformed into a heavenly man in an unmixed, sinless condition. And it's characterized by death, by resurrection, and by rapture. I want to make two observations here as we wind down. The first is that in Christ, the believer is no longer in the unmixed, sinful condition of the old man. That has passed away, 2 Corinthians 5.17. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. And what is true about that new creation is that he can never go back to his former condition. He is a new creation that is different from the old one. And the fact that you are still influenced and appealed to by sin does not mean that you slipped back into that unmixed condition. It means that you're in a mixed condition and that you are being appealed to by sin. So the believer is not in their former unmixed sinful condition. But secondly, they're not yet in their ultimate unmixed sinless condition with Christ. Not yet being in that condition is as much a part of God's design as it is that you can never go back to your former condition. So it glorifies God when in your mixed condition you fight for holiness of life. It's a better condition than you were in before but it's not nearly as good as the condition you will have someday. So what we want to talk about here briefly as we wind down is your position and your practice. The position before God for the believer is perfect. Their position is perfect and they are declared righteous. But their practice, their sanctification is progressing. The believer now has new desires to obey Christ but indwelling sin is still hanging around. The difference is, is that sin is no longer an authority over the Christian. Instead, it appeals to the Christian with attractive lies. So all of that makes you a mixed creature, and there is much conflict within. And that conflict is good. And the fight of that conflict is what proves you to be a regenerate man. So, Keep in mind that the believer is in a mixed condition. God has saved the believer into a mixed condition. And this mixed condition provides and it requires and it demands strength and grace for the days ahead. And this is why the believer needs to utilize every means of God's grace that he has given to him for his sanctification. And the two primary reasons of that are reading the word and prayer. So because you're in a mixed condition in which sin still appeals to you, but sin no longer has authority over you, it is essential that you expose yourself to the truth of God's word every day. The truth of God's word that explains and reveals God's character and reveals and explains who you are before him. And that you are communicating regularly with God in prayer, 
prayer that includes thanksgiving for what he has done already and what he will do in the future, and prayer that asks him and begs him for grace and strength to live a life that is holy before him. That is why we put reading plans in front of you. We are hard in our desires that every man in this church, every man in this ministry and build is in the word every day. And if you need a reading plan to help you do that, get on one and stay on one. If you have something that's already working, keep doing that. But by God's grace, we will continue. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for every one of the men who are in build. I thank you for your goodness and your grace to them. I thank you for saving them. Lord, I thank you that the man in the mixed condition can never go back to his former condition. And just as certainly as he can never go back to his former condition, he will one day be a heavenly man. Lord, I pray that that understanding of that knowledge would compel every man to persevere by your grace. And I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you very much for listening. Next up, two weeks from now, is Ben James. And he will speaking about four truths for our heart from Proverbs. God bless. Have a good week.